This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. There was a big boost for media companies big and small last week when millions of dollars was announced for more than 100 new journalist jobs. The money comes from the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which means the public purse is paying for it all, and that sparked the suspicions of some that it might undermine media independence and coverage of politics. We look at that and how the now-familiar lockdown fast-food frenzy in the media is getting a little stale for some. Ha-ha! Yes, it's hilarious. I just think sometimes the fixation is a bit lame. But first, in just four days this past week, three opposition leaders presented plans for reopening our borders and all of them dangled the prospect of the freedom to travel by Christmas and an end to what they called MIQ misery. It will be the most complete, comprehensive and well-researched blueprint to immediately address the significant issues within the government's lack of planning around managing the COVID response and reconnecting New Zealand with the world. That was the National Party's leader, Judith Collins, on Tuesday morning, telling reporters that, about 24 hours later, they get details of her party's COVID response plan and its plan for opening up our borders for travel by Christmas, which, as we'll hear, turned out to be the timetable of choice for opposition politicians, with an eye on what they think Kiwis wanted to hear. Previously, Judith Collins had mocked the government for making announcements about its announcements yet to come, and the media were not too thrilled either about being summoned for news that they'd end up covering the next day. We're here today at the airport in Wellington because under our plan, Kiwis will be able to fly. But Judith Collins had a reason for wanting to get Wednesday into the diary of our news media, others announcing their COVID recovery plans to the media ahead of hers. A former National Party leader, Sir John Key, kicked it all off on Sunday with his own personal five-point plan, which was more like five bullet points on about a page and a half of A4. But his op-ed piece took up two bits of two pages in Stuff's Sunday Star Times last weekend, and it also took up two chunks of a double-page spread in the Herald on Sunday, and appeared on the websites of both simultaneously at 5am. And thanks to the Herald's copy-sharing deal with the Otago Daily Times, it also appeared on its website as well the same day, after which News Hub, feeling a little left out perhaps, asked if it could run it online as well, and it did. And then, after the reckons, came the reckoning. John Key first ran through it all on ZB's Sunday session that morning, where he was largely unchallenged by host Francesca Rudkin. Look, I think what they're trying to do is just inject fear into people. I mean, I think they realise you can't keep borrowing a billion dollars a week um, to fund lockdowns, and trying to terrorise people and make them fearful is not going to work. John Key then appeared on One News at Six that evening, and then the next day on RNZ's Morning Report, the Mike Hosking Breakfast and the AM Show on Three, each time amplifying his image of a Labour-led smug hermit kingdom and even the North Korea of the South Seas. But Sir John's main points were mostly points that John Key had made before and had been aired in the media already. Hayden Donnell took a look at that on Midweek Media Watch this week, talking to Brian Crump last Wednesday on RNZ National, and he also talked about other claims that John Key made which were fact-checked and rebutted pretty heavily by reporters. That's on our page of the RNZ website or in our podcast feed if you missed it. But Sir John's North Korea comparison was a new thing, and when interviewers asked him if this was overwrought or absurd even, John Key stuck to his guns. Look, ultimately, we can't just sit back forever saying we're the hermit kingdom. I mean, literally, us in North Korea are the people that can't travel. 
Well, there are, of course, many other countries and regions of countries where travel is still not possible other than North Korea. Though the irony is that only in places like North Korea can a revered former leader command so many media mentions. And not for nothing did the Dominion Post columnist Dave Armstrong say his omnipresent op-ed should have been bylined Key John Sir. On interest.co.nz, political commentator Chris Trotter said that Sir John's intervention wasn't just unscientific, it was actually unstatesmanlike. Frankly, it's more akin to the sort of language one encounters on Facebook. And in the Herald on Tuesday, senior writer Simon Wilson agreed, saying that Sir John had adopted the language of wingnuts on social media and talkback callers. Stuff's senior political reporter Henry Cook called all this a dramatic re-entry into the political spotlight, though it is of course the media that decide when to turn that spotlight on, and evidently most of them were only too happy to point the beam of light on him on Sunday and after that. And it also swung briefly onto another leader seeking exposure on Monday, New Zealand First Winston Peters, who popped up on NZME's rural show The Country to tell the host Jamie Mackay he was using Sir John's attention-grabbing exaggerations first. Now, there is some debate as to who came up with the phrase hermit kingdom. Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Is it his saying or yours? Uh, look, I hate to say this, but on Q&A a whole week ago, I used the phrase... But it might call Winston Peters to know that his media nemesis, Mike Hosking, has long deployed the hermit kingdom zinger that Mr Peters now seems so proud of. And as it happened, the day after that, the ACT Party put out its border plan to the media as well. And remarkably, just like Sir John's, it too was a short, sharp five points long, and also hinged on freedom to travel for Kiwis by Christmas, as well as freedom from government-orchestrated fear. Sandwiching this in between Sir John's and Judith Collins' big reveals this week, though, certainly worked for ACT in terms of media coverage. RNZ's checkpoint called it the Battle of the Border Blueprints, but the workings are only to be found in a document called Life After Lockdown on the party's website, which has big pictures and is only eight pages long. RNZ's Katie Scotcher went on to report that National was keeping its policy under wraps on Tuesday, mostly. But MP Chris Bishop has signalled the party wants New Zealanders to be able to travel freely in and out of the country by Christmas but they clearly wanted people to know that their policy was a big body of work, as TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay told One News viewers on Tuesday. I'm told it's a 60-page report. They gave us a bit of a taster on that today, though, saying that if you are overseas and if you're double-vaxxed, you should be able to come home for Christmas. So, three plans from opposition leaders passed and present in just four days, all saying that a Kiwi Christmas is doable. But National's one on Wednesday was the one with real substance, a plan to move on from elimination or eradication to vigorous suppression of the virus. And National's COVID spokesperson Chris Bishop spoke directly to Kiwis stranded overseas. We want you to be able to come back to New Zealand. National's travel plan allows that to happen. And to those who might be listening to the live stream, he held out this tantalising prospect. Grandparents who come back from overseas for a summer break to see the grandkids the lawyer in London who comes home for a few weeks to escape the London winter and enjoy some beers at the beach with long-lost mates. And Kiwis who go the other way, who journey across the ditch to Oz, maybe to catch some cricket, maybe some music festivals. And while that sounded nice, it would obviously take much more than just a policy change to make that happen by Christmas. After the announcement, News Hub's Tova O'Brien put Chris Bishop on the spot. 
Do you have any modelling to back that up, 85% by Christmas? Uh, I mean, not, not in the sense of, um, you know, a, a, a models of the number per day. And later, RNZ's Lisa Owen pressed the point on RNZ's checkpoint. So what do you consider to be a low level? How many cases a day? Well, I, I think um, cases around the 50 mark uh, would be a, a low level. At that level, you can uh, cope with COVID um, in the community uh, and make sure that um, it's, it's dealt with through the system. And having established that we would be living with the virus under Nationals' plan, Lisa Owen asked Chris Bishop this. So what increased hospital capacity exactly will you need if you implement this model? How many more ICU beds, how many more doctors, what exact resources will you need to counter the flow-on effects of this open border policy? Well, it's impossible to state that with any specificity. What we've done in the paper is... And that's your problem, isn't it? It is indeed one of the problems with the plan, and they ran out of time to explore it much further on Checkpoint that night, so Chris Bishop signed off like this. So it's a very comprehensive, well-thought-through plan that I think that people, if they go and read it, can get behind. And anyone who does read the report will find that four pages of the 55-page effort does detail how hospitals might be prepped to cope with open borders and travel and the existing modelling they use to estimate the peaks they might have to cope with. But while political reporters quizzed National Party politicians hard about their plan on the day it came out, there's been little thorough analysis of it since by health correspondents or specialist commentators. And several pundits pointed out this week that there's also considerable overlap between the things that opposition parties have proposed and the so-called roadmap that's already been published last August by the group the government commissioned, which was led by epidemiologist Sir David Skegg. Political calls this week for freedom of travel by Christmas are plainly unrealistic, and likewise snap demands for things like dedicated MIQ estates. But it's also becoming clear this summer won't be like the last one, and likewise next year while life without lockdown but with COVID in the community are now being debated in earnest by the media, reporting political posturing on it just gets in the way. Back in February, after an awful lot of consultation, lobbying and eventually discussions in Cabinet, the government unveiled the Public Interest Journalism Fund, $55 million for the media over three years. They said this would help sustain at-risk local news and journalism, and in the big picture it would be a contribution to a healthy democracy. And recently it announced a contribution of more than 100 new jobs for journalists, which we'll hear about in a minute. This is the biggest single public investment in journalism for decades, and media companies big and small, local and national, can all apply to the fund via the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air, which said it would spend the fund's money in three ways. On specific journalism projects to be delivered to the public to a deadline, on industry development, things like cadetships, training and capacity building, and on actually employing reporters in newsrooms around the country. Predictably, most media companies have welcomed all of this investment, but opposition politicians reckon that just might make the media reluctant to bite the government hand that's feeding them in the future. Just after the launch of the fund, National's broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee even asked the bosses of state-owned TVNZ and RNZ if they'd run shy in the future of stories that could bring down ministers or even the government if they feared losing this funding. They both said no, and the Minister of Broadcasting and Media, Chris Farfoy, said that neither he nor his peers could have any say in where the public's money went. 
I am confident that any decisions that made uh, around any of the funding support that we have um, that we have uh, announced recently uh, is completely and utterly uh, clear of any ministerial involvement and uh, quite rightly is undertaken by New Zealand on air. Since then, the National Party leader Judith Collins has also asked the Prime Minister in Parliament if this funding is buying the media's compliance and she said so in a few interviews, including this one. Does that buy compliance or what? Um, and if it doesn't buy compliance, then why is part of that? Are there conditions in that that says that you've got to be seen to be promoting the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi? You're talking about free media, free speech, and you've got a government going around telling people, well, well, we'll help you out in the media because we think it's good to have a media, but you have to say what we think you should say. I just don't, I don't buy it, and I don't think media should be buying it either. That was in July, just after New Zealand On Air spent the first $10 million from the fund on a range of projects, with about 40% benefiting Māori journalism, including a training programme to train and hire 25 new journalists and cadets. In June, the editor of Stuff, Patrick Crudson, reassured his readers there was a church and state divide separating the newsroom from any source of financial influence, whether the money comes from advertisers or the public. He said Stuff has been getting money from New Zealand on air for years for investigations, podcasts and video projects. Likewise, production companies could also seek funding for projects that Stuff itself publishes. In an article headlined, Why Government Money Doesn't Corrupt Our Journalism, he said it wouldn't even enter a journalist's head to pull their punches to protect a funder. And he pointed to journalism already funded by New Zealand On Air for Stuff, such as its multimedia series Life and Limb, all about casualties caused by New Zealand's involvement in Afghanistan. But the fear that the fund does, or will, compromise the independence of our media, either editorial or financial, has also come from former journalists. Former newspaper editor Carl Dufresne calls it the Pravda Project, and former Metro and North and South journalist and columnist Graham Adams claimed the idea that much political coverage is now heavily influenced by the fund is widespread. And when controversial magic talk host Peter Williams, who was no fan of the Ardern government, retired suddenly earlier this month... Some of his disappointed fans thought the funding was part of the reason. Your parent company, News Hub, have had their snout in the trough of this um, journalist fund, the $55 million fund, and um, it comes with strings attached, and he's gone. Somewhere along the line, he's been bumped off with her magic talk. It's funding from the government or whatever, but um, Peter didn't go willingly. Late last week, the Public Interest Journalism Fund announced its biggest outlay yet for employing journalists in new roles, in most cases for a period of two years, and the big media companies were big beneficiaries. For example, Stuff gets just under $3 million to hire 20 journalists for Community News and its Māori initiative Potiaki. NZME, owner of The Herald, gets about the same for 15 roles for Te Pātiti, reporting on justice in the courts, which will end up in 11 different publications. The Otago Daily Times publisher Allied Press gets $700,000 for four new staff and Discovery New Zealand gets the same sum for three new News Hub journalists. And Māori Television gets more than $1.5 million for seven new journalist jobs. TVNZ, meanwhile, gets money for two new roles for TVNZ News, while $3.5 million will boost the local democracy reporting scheme administered by RNZ to take on 20 reporters around the country. And there's more. Website The Spin-Off gets money for two new staff. Magazines North and South Metro and new publisher School Road all get money for new staff as well, along with more than a dozen smaller local news publishers and broadcasters. 
All this money will be a godsend for editors and managers around the country. But what do we get for our money? I asked New Zealand On Air's head of journalism, Raywin Rash. Well, let's look at some of the big ticket items, if I can put it like that. Um, for example, uh, there's 15 new roles created in a project that's called Open Justice uh, Te Patiti. That's yeah, about $3 million going to this. Builders are skiing to fill gaps in court reporting. What do you think will be the output of that and where will people see it? They'll see it in their local newspapers because the scheme is pretty much nationwide. NZME have sort of um, are working alongside Allied Press down in, in the south of the south. We'll um, cover that area. And it is one of those areas where we, we identified there has been a fall in the number of um, journalists able to cover court. Uh, court reporting is, is time-consuming. Uh, it's expensive to a degree because you need experienced journalists. So this is one of the ways the fund can support the sort of regeneration of that kind of news gathering. But it will also provide that nationwide um, ability to look at issues of justice so that we can have a, you know, some deep dives into, you know, why is it taking so long for cases to come to court? And does that happen in Rotorua? Is that the same as what happens in Dunedin? And, you know, really start to sort of pull out some of these issues around justice. But it won't be uh, actually nationwide, though, will it? Maybe in Dunedin, where the ODT is, and in Rotorua, where NZME has a paper, uh, that's fine. But all the other NZME papers are uh, up in North Island. So I mean, this, this, for example, won't be available to newspapers published by Stuff and other parts of the, the country? Well, this is an NZME proposal and they have partnered with RNZ and Allied so we can only fund what people bring to us and this scheme was brought to us it it absolutely meets the needs that we identified so it has been funded. And another big ticket item stuff uh, 20 roles this is for community reporting and uh, Potiaki which is it's Te Ao Māori reporting at news features opinion an analysis featuring Māori voices and exploring uh, the Māori world. The community reporting, that's interesting because stuff closed or sold somewhere around about 25 community titles and the roles that went with them a, a few years ago. Uh, is this basically an opportunity for them to resurrect what they had to uh, close down? I'm not sure we'll, whether we'll necessarily resurrect, but we will certainly support um, the ongoing, you know, the titles that they currently have that journalism and we again you know we realize that that local journalism is really important to really provide good solid local coverage uh, where it can so nine roles are for the uh, potiaki area and that will expand that to other regions because i think uh, it's it's workforce is limited to you know very much sort of auckland based but this will give that regional coverage as well so another thing is the expansion of the local democracy reporting service. And this, I guess, was the kind of groundbreaker in all this. Um, this was the first thing, really, where uh, the public purse ended up funding reporters that sat in existing newspaper newsrooms. Is all that now coming on board? The whole project will now be funded via the Public Interest Journalism Fund? Yes, yes. Basically, it's come into our fund. So it's it's 18 reporters and two support staff. And those 18 reporters basically are based around the country in um, a variety of newsrooms. We'll be producing stories that actually spread to 26 newsrooms. Mm. I wonder though if there's the potential for some double-ups just looking at that geographic spread. For example, there's a separate role being created, a part-time one at the Central App in Otago, also one at the Ashburton Guardian. Couldn't these have come into the local democracy 
reporting service? The central app is a very small one and it's a, <laughs> a hyper-local scheme. So it's not really at the scale at which it could come into the LDR. So we wanted to support that. And the LDR reporters are very much, uh, you know, confined to to reporting on issues um, of local government and uh, don't really um, do sort of any sort of mainstream reporting that that a paper might want them to do. Established broadcast newsrooms have have done well out of this too. Uh, So News Hub, I think, have three roles funded from this, TVNZ too. But why was it necessary for, you know, such established and market-leading commercial news newsrooms to be able to dip into this fund to add a couple more roles? So these are roles that those organisations haven't been able to fund themselves. I mean, TVNZ, for instance, this is the first of um, what we're calling the partnership editor scheme, um, a Māori role at the senior executive level to provide that kind of Māori oversight uh, at the very um, top levels of, of news and current affairs at TVNZ. And the second role will support that um, position because of the, just the large-scale number of um, news and current affairs um, uh, programs within the TVNZ um, slate. So they'll be able to actually um, work and ensure that the sort of decisions that get made at that sort of executive level can actually be carried out at, at, at a program level. Is it around translations of things? Is it around supporting um, tikanga within individual stories? So um, those two roles are very exciting and we'll start to see some of those um, those roles actually appear in other uh, proposals, um, I think, in coming rounds. Uh, the uh, News Hub roles, again, a Pacifica reporter, an Asian reporter and a Māori affairs reporter. So those, again, really um, important roles that... Um, neither of those organisations feel that they're um, able to fund themselves. In terms of that partnership editor role, I mean, there have been political uh, objections or questions raised about this. For example, uh, whether they would have a role in basically monitoring whether media companies are uh, abiding by the principles of Te Tiriti or Waitangi and raising objections to that, saying this isn't actually consistent with um, a free media that makes its own editorial decisions. I mean, is the role of a partnership editor to actually edit or even censor stories if they don't think they're consistent with the principles of tetiriti? No, I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, I think that I, I, these roles are to enable a newsroom to have a, a Māori lens across the decisions that are made every day. This is really important, um, important change, a transformational change within our newsrooms. I think Māori deserve a seat at that executive table. I I cannot understand how that would be a bad thing. Right, so it's not on-programme editorial um, scrutiny kind of role. Well, all editorial decisions are made on based on fairness and, you know, uh, balance, all of those journalistic things. And one of those journalistic things surely should be that it has, uh, that is fair to, to Māori. So I still don't quite understand why that should be problematic they will sit at this at the executive level like any other executive and and help shape the the news agenda for whichever organization they're a part of their job will be to provide a maori lens across the decisions that are made Māori lens has not been there up until now, then that's a deficit. Now, in the last round that was content-based uh, funding back in July, uh, 40% of that roundabout was targeted at specific Māori content. And there's some more this time. So seven roles for Māori television are being funded from this new fund. That'll take up, upwards of a million and a half dollars. 
And there's also uh, some funding for uh, Radio Watea, uh, which is going to get six and a half roles um, for funded for one year. Um, so that's quite a, a big and significant boost. But there's a whole parallel Māori funding agency, uh, Tamangai Pahu, exists. Is it not doubling up to have, you know, effectively two public funding agencies funding the same new services for Māori audiences? Um, it's not doubling up, and we do work um, very closely with Tamangai Pahu to ensure that what we're funding isn't um, duplicating what they're funding. Māori television, for instance, is not funded to produce news and current affairs. It chooses to produce news and current affairs, but it needs more support to do that. And so providing these roles is really important. And the other aspect to it is, of course, that Māori television, Radio Wātea, have been essentially become the default training organisation for Māori journalists who then go on to um, populate the rest of the industry. Providing these roles, I'm sure that that will go on to support the wider industry in in helping us to grow um, both quantity and quality of Māori journalists. Is there anything specific in the output that you're hoping for, say for the addition of these seven roles in in Māori television, the specific changes in in news or specific new programmes and news or current affairs and journalism that you hope will will come out of it and also at um, at Radio Wātea? We're really just supporting the of Māori journalism to ensure that we've got um, the ability for those organisations to hire senior staff who can mentor and grow others. So that's really important. Once we give them more staff, their ability to produce news and current affairs will be enhanced. So we have no expectation that that there will be, you know, other programmes coming that that will be up to those organisations as to how they use those roles. But we've seen, like, with the COVID wage subsidy, people saying retrospectively, oh, well, that company never needed the money. Was was part of the conditions to actually look at their bottom lines and say, well, does this company really need the money? Was one of the questions, could you have funded this role you now want to create uh, with your own revenue and income? I think we always ask people that, that question. <laughs> the answer is always no. Um, but uh, we, we did differentiate between non-incremental roles and incremental roles. So where uh, someone uh, wanted to uh, fund their current workforce, they have had to meet a much higher uh, bar. That, that is definitely around, is this role at risk? And you need to demonstrate that. And we have a number of those roles which are now facing a much um, more intensive interrogation of how and why that role may need funding. And Roman, also some in recent months, some opposition politicians and some former journalists have commented negatively about the Public Interest Journalism Fund. They say it creates um, a kind of financial dependence, which they don't believe is healthy on funding from government, and also that there could be kind of political compromises, that it would uh, result in running soft on the government, things like that. We've also heard, you know, listening to talk radio, people raising this kind of unprompted, talking about the team of 55 million. So they're obviously even aware of the sum that's available in the fund from the public purse. Are you concerned about a public perception and even some, mainly veteran journalists, who think this isn't a healthy development, this government uh, large yes for the industry? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where this comes from and, and where the evidence is to suggest that we somehow have uh, some influence over the editorial of, of the media. We do not. New Zealand On Air has been running for, you know, 32 years. 
every year they fund factual scripted programs that is you know is, is not a, a government mouthpiece the public interest journalism fund is not set up to be a mouthpiece of the government it is set up to provide public interest journalism that actually holds power to account and if you actually looked at what we're funding and looked at the projects that we're funding you would see that that's exactly what we're doing i have yet to see any evidence that we have done anything that would somehow influence the editorial outcomes of the media and remembering that we're only funding a very small amount of what the media does we're only funding very targeted public interest journalism journalism that holds power to account you know and does all of the things that actually uh, have been eroded over time because uh, companies have bottom lines to worry about you know um, and the local government scheme is another really good example because I understand how it's really hard for a newspaper to sit there and go well, you know we really don't have the money and the time to allow a reporter to sit in a council meeting day after day and maybe not even get a story out of it. However, from a public interest journalism perspective, what's important is that the journalism, journalist is in the room. And so funding that is fundamental to, you know, enabling our democracy to really function as it should. But you don't, you don't agree that it will create a kind of dependence? These are two-year roles, and if the money runs out or the government changes and the current opposition clearly doesn't support it, uh, all this would fall away? Do you worry about that? Sustainability has been an issue, you know, right from the word go. We've always raised it. We've always saying to people, can you think of ways to be more sustainable? Can you think of ways that this role would continue post the fund? That's beyond our scope, really. We've been asked to run the fund and we're running it as well as we can. You know, how the, the, the media is, is funded in the future will be up to, to the government and, and the industry to decide. That was New Zealand On Air Head of Journalism, Raywin Rash. And you can hear more from her and find a full list of where the latest $18 million of the Public Interest Journalism Fund is going in the online version of the story. It's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, and the full interview is also in our podcast feed, available via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last week here on Media Watch, we mentioned, just in passing, that the media seemed pretty amused by that yarn about the cash-toting gang members who were caught trying to get KFC from Hamilton into Auckland when it was still in Level 4. And jokes about the illegal Teagle and contraband coleslaw spread on a cop car bonnet were fairly funny, even though it was actually a potentially serious breach. And when all that went global, it was inevitable that US Late Show host and Aotearoa-ophile Stephen Colbert would notice. Ten tubs of coleslaw? Arrest them for that. Who looks at mac and cheese and mashed potatoes and says, ah, you know what I could go for? Wet cabbage. We'll be right back with Bob Woodward. But while Colbert squeezed a gag out of the coleslaw on the CBS network, a frontman here had a sense of humour failure about it last weekend. Two guys got caught trying to smuggle buckets of K-fry over the Auckland border. Hilarious. I just think sometimes the fixation is a bit lame. It was Jack Tame who told his ZB listeners he hoped we wouldn't have a fast food frenzy coming out of Level 4 this time round, but he was disappointed. Big brand fast food franchise marketing has to be one of the greatest media swindles of our time. 
Because in case you haven't noticed, the food's not really that good. But in case Jack Tame hadn't noticed, the media are a part of that problem. They carry a heavy load of fast food ads, and the big brands sponsor a lot of media content and events. And launches of new and novel franchised fast food products get heaps of hype for free on their entertainment shows. And Jack Tame might be just as disappointed about the media queuing up to cover the fast food frenzy in numbers. When last year's Level 4 lockdown lifted, a TVNZ reporter bought a burger breakfast live on air, captured by two other national media outlets as he did so. Two Big Macs and hot chocolate. Thanks. Good, yeah. Here's Thanks. the photographer. You might be able to see him when they drive past. Okay. Hi, hey, okay. mate. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, good. And at that time, even public service RNZ was in motorised McDonald's queues in the regions. Well, I'm quite into these hunger buses, so that's usually my... Uh, come to at the breakfast time. What have you been doing for breakfast during the lockdown then? I'm having to cook my own. <laughs> and plumber Hemi's cooking skills were even RNZ newsworthy after that. Hemi Rangi was on his way to his plumbing job. He was hanging out for a particular combo deal saying he was over his own cooking. Now at that time some pointed out that what people were really craving was the return of normal life to their neighbourhoods more than the actual takeaways but not everyone was willing or able to spend on treat food as soon as they could. It wasn't just coffee shops attracting a crowd. Cash converters and a foreign exchange in South Auckland were also inundated with people. The day of the Level 3 shift earlier this month, New Zealand Herald columnist Matthew Hooten said the real story was not takeaways, but half a million essential workers across the country who kept the real economy going through the national lockdowns in 2020 and again in 2021. That so many Aucklanders have been going to work over the last month underlines that lockdown is largely a middle-class phenomenon. While white-collar workers get to work from home, or pretend to, those in healthcare, social services, agriculture, forestry, fishing, manufacturing, distribution and retail have been showing up at their workplaces right through. And we should applaud them, said Matthew Hooten. But much of the mainstream media this time round barely mentions them. For example, when TVNZ Seven Sharp addressed the stresses of the lengthening lockdown recently, they showed hosts Hilary Barry and Jeremy Wells bemoaning boredom, lolling around on their sofas eating. If you're feeling like this, you're not alone. In fact, there's a pretty accurate word to describe it. It's called languishing. Also recognised as, nah, blah, fed up, or just over it. And those who have been busier than ever working essential and often low-paid jobs wouldn't have found this advice on Seven Sharp from media-friendly psychologist Sarah Chatwin very handy. We need to find those things that resonate for us. So it might mean that you Zoom or you Skype a friend and have a great conversation. It might mean that you watch that, that TV box set that you've been putting off or that you achieve some of those things in your life that you put off pre-lockdown that you now have a lot of time to get to. So, I mean, you, you've just got to celebrate what you can do and leave the rest of it behind. If only it was so simple for people working through the COVID crisis and doing essential work. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Brian Crump on nights and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.